Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here today. Uh, <laughs> thank you, the one person. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know me or don't remember me because it has been a while, uh, I am Thomas. Um, I have the wonderful pleasure of sharing uh, our scripture for today. So we're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their, knee, on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water and will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So let's pray as we have Trev come up. Jesus, we just thank you for this time together. Um, we thank you for this book, Lord, and just the promise of the coming King. Jesus, would you come back soon? Um, in the meantime, Lord, I pray that you would gift with us wisdom and knowledge, that you would open our hearts to what you're trying to, to teach us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would give Trev... Um, just the wisdom and knowledge to preach this sometimes difficult word, but Lord, that uh, he would do such a phenomenal job, um, that you would use him mightily in what he's saying, and Lord, once again, that you would open our ears to hear what you would have us hear. Um, so thank you for this time together, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, Thomas. And in the first service, he prayed for us in this evening, and I made the comment, that's about how long it's going to take to get through these passages. Uh, so if you're brand new to Mission Hill, I will pray for you because this is not really the first type of sermon that would tend to introduce people to a church. Revelation chapter 7, 13, and 14, the mark of the beast, the 144,000, and the great winepress of God. But enough like small talk, uh, let's get after it. Um, we're in uh, this series on Revelation, and uh, I remember, as I was reflecting, I remember thinking as a, as a kid when I was at camp, uh, there was a speaker, and I walked up to the speaker, and, and I had this kind of burning conviction, I want to know if I'm really saved. How do I know if I'm really saved? Is there any of you that have ever thought, am I, is this, is this for real? Like, is this a real thing? And some of you are, are not not necessarily in that camp, but you may be in the kind of camp, I want to know more. I want to know deeper. I want to know so deep that it just, I, 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 yeah, that's what I was reflecting on. And I thought, as I thought through that, because I think these particular texts act like these giant evaluation forms for us. 
that help us to evaluate our own lives, evaluate our spiritual lives. I think they're perfectly applicable to us as a church, uh, not just as individuals. Um, but uh, we, we want to be listening from that perspective of these are going to act like these giant evaluation forms. And so you, you might feel the pinch. You might feel like there's something that's not right that you got to make right. Um, and that's not really my fault. That's actually the reason why it's important to go through the text, the Word of God. That is the Holy Spirit of God. We'll get into that. Um, but uh, this is going to be a Christmas miracle if I can somehow get through these and uh, get you to your um, uh, afternoon lunch. But what we want to do is I, I want to divide up the three chapters of Revelation, and they do deeply connect to each other. This is why it's okay that we're doing this. Um, it's just probably unusual that I'm doing this. Uh, this is something that Aaron does really well and I struggle with, so bear with me this morning. But chapter 7 is who belongs to the Lamb. And chapter 13 is who belongs to the dragon, or at least who works for the dragon. And lastly, how does Jesus separate them out? How, how, how does the lamb separate these two out? And so chapter 7, I had us read it. I'm just going to walk over here and get my, sorry, get my water and try and, that's not the Holy Spirit yet. That is just the microphone. I'm going to bring it out front again. So, in chapter 7, what we actually see, again, sorry, we actually see this image uh, that is given to John. John stands these, these four angels, and, and there's this sense in which the, the, all these texts will act like this giant tug of war, which I think we all have felt in our souls, particularly the last two years. Anyone felt like there's a tug of war over your soul, like you're pulled one way and then you're pulled another way? Uh, that's actually unseen reality, that there actually is a war for your soul. And these texts are here to help us understand who's the real winner in the unseen unseen realm. And so we, we have this, uh, we, we've taken this approach from Revelation that we're, we're we're seeing everything symbolically. I think this is, no matter who you are, you see at least some parts of Revelation symbolically. The real controversy then comes out of what is symbolic and what is not. And so we're taking the approach that everything really is symbolic here. Even the things that seem really clear, unless there's a description of a particular symbolic thing. But this is the image that first comes to John. And it follows kind of chapter 6. All these seals have been broken. All this judgment is going to be coming at some point. But John has an angel basically come and say, wait, wait, wait. Before you get to go out and start this harvest, before these seals happen, I want to tell you how this ends. Because they needed the conviction that shows up in this text. These angels, there's four of them. Four always describes kind of this completeness in directions. It's usually directions. So you see four horsemen in Zechariah. You see four horses, different colors. These horses, these people, these angels, when they fly, they go in, in, in directions. North, east, south, west. Never eat shredded wheat, right? That's how it works. These these. Angels fly in these four directions, and they fly to everyone of every language of every nation. This is, this, is a, this is the way of saying everywhere on earth. 
everywhere on earth. Uh, these angels are sent with the specific task of finding out who is who. And so that's why John says, well, then I heard the number 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. These are the tribes of Israel, except I think it's symbolic because these tribes never show up like this pattern in the, in the Bible ever, this way. Uh, Joseph shows up in this list, and he has never shown up before. And the tribe of Dan, I know everyone's favorite tribe. I get it, I get it, I get it. It's not there. And we don't really know why, except this number is awful perfect for it to be anything but symbolic. And that's how I think it should be read. And let's point out that this is the number that he hears. So in other words, how many... People, who belongs to the Lamb? Well, 144,000 belong to the Lamb. Do you have in your mind about what that looks like? Right? Like one of those big football stadiums in Europe. Football using proper termage, I guess. Right? About 100,000. 144,000. And so he's like, oh, I, I kind of got an idea of what that looks like. And he turns around and what does he find? He doesn't find 144,000. He sees a multitude from every nation. You see that in the text? After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. Now think about that for a second. How many people belong in this family? 144,000. That's not 144,000. What we're trying to see here is this is God saying I have a specific number of people that I'm developing, a very, and, and these 12 tribes would symbolize God's chosen people. But when he looked, it wasn't the description that normally comes with God's chosen people. People from every nation? Uh-uh. That's not God's people. God's people are Jewish. They're not from every nation. They're multi, not multicultural. In every language. That doesn't sound like God's chosen people. God's chosen people speak Hebrew. This is, this is a description of the church, I think, and as well as many notable scholars. I spent a long time thinking through this and studying it. This is, this is John seeing a picture of what the church has looked like and will look like. The church being actually a description that comes from the Old Testament, meaning gathered ones. This is the description that shows up in Galatians where God takes his chosen people and grafts in the Gentiles. But there's actually the description that the, the people that are grafted in will actually start at some point to outnumber the originals. And there's a judgment actually that comes upon these people. And we think it's fulfilled in 70 AD. But here's what they're saying. Everyone's like, who's, who's, who's who? And one goes like, you know, you know. I think that's how he said it anyways. <laughs> who's, who's around the throne? Who's around the throne? What are they saying? They're, they're standing around the throne. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They fell on their faces and worshiped. Amen. Blessing, glory, honor, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever and ever. These are people that were sealed by God. 
says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed our servants of God. These are God's saved people. Who are the 144,000? Who's the church? Those that are saved. Those that are saved. Not those that attend a service. Those that are saved. Those that are saved. Which means the Holy Spirit has preached the gospel to you inside where you make all your decisions. Where your identity, where who you really are exists. That's where you believe the gospel. And he continues to work in you and enables your ongoing belief and transformation. The Holy Spirit is the one who, the Bible says, regenerates our hearts, gives us new hearts. There's a description, a prophecy in the Old Testament in Ezekiel that says, you had a heart of stone, I'm going to make a heart of flesh. Do you know whose job description it is to take a stone that doesn't beat with life and make it into a heart that beats for Jesus Christ and the Lamb? It's the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot be a Christian without being filled with God's Spirit, regenerating your heart. You cannot. It's impossible. If some of you are confused about... Do I have the Holy Spirit? If you're saved, you do. That's the way it works. If you don't know that, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. To make sense of something that doesn't quite make sense. That's how you really know it's the Holy Spirit. You describe the gospel like, hey, we, you know, what do you believe, Trev? Well, I believe that there's this king who we can't see and he's coming back and he was born but he was perfect and he was God who became man and he's coming back on a white horse. Only my three-year-old actually goes, that sounds about right. (laughs) And here's me going, yeah, you bet I believe that. I die for that. How did I get there? The Holy Spirit regenerates my heart, saves me, convinces me of something that seems crazy if I try to make it logical. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just save us. He seals us. I love this image. And some of us know this from like a presidential seal or a, uh, we don't, nobody in Canada knows what our seal looks like, do we? Um, But we do know what the seal of the United States looks like. Anyways, maybe I just watched too much West Wing. Okay, back to the message, Trev. What's great about a seal is that it does a number of things if you, you, if you think of it the way they thought of it in its original day. A seal was something you would put on a, a, a letter. Does anyone know what a letter is still? Or do I have to explain this? Okay, if you're under the age of 25, a, yeah. <laughs> Before you could do this electronically, you had to do it with paper. With a stamp and everything. And often, instead of encrypting it, you would put a piece of wax with a seal and you would stamp that on how you would open up the envelope. In other words, it did two things. It authenticated and said, this is from this particular person officially, but it also preserved it and kept it safe. It kept anyone from reading it. The only people that were allowed to open the seal were those who were authorized to do so. Do you see how a seal authenticates but also preserves? This is such a beautiful picture of why the Bible says we were sealed with God's Holy Spirit. This is the down payment that comes through Jesus Christ. Not everything is finished in our life yet, but we have this down payment, this seal that authenticates our faith but preserves it. Ongoing belief, ongoing faith. 
This is how you grow in faith. This is how God puts his image into us. Ongoing. We're not static. We grow into the image of Christ. You know who does that? It's the Holy Spirit. He, pre- he preserves us. He keeps us to the end. That's the 144,000. That's the church. And thirdly, those who are part of this are followers. Now, this is an interesting thing for some of us because some of us actually don't think our obedience and our followership even matters. But it does. Because the Holy Spirit's not someone who says, yeah, you know, I saved them, but I don't really care about them. No, the Holy Spirit says, no, no, no. No, no, I want to grow you into the way Jesus looks. And so we need to understand that those who are part of this 144,000, look at what do they say at the end. He will guide them. The lamb is in the midst of their soul, will be their shepherd. This is the description of people that don't just have Jesus as their Savior, they have him as their Lord, superior, the one who tells them what to do, how to act. And we all know this, that there is a direct correlation between what's actually in our hearts and the way that we act. And even when we act in ways that aren't like our hearts, there's a disconnect that's hard to do for a while. That's why it's hard to keep up a lie for any length of time. That's why you have to have a really, 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 really long history of a crooked heart in order to pull that off. Because there's this disconnect. We need to understand that this is God's way of saying, you know, those who are saved are not pretenders. You can be part of a church, and I've known people who have been part of a church, and you can pretend. And here's what I would say. You're only fooling me. But you're not fooling the one who actually looks into hearts. And my recommendation is you're not going to get away with it for much longer. There's only so long that we get away with pretending. And that's why these aren't the people that look like Christians followers of Jesus Christ. These are people. Okay, that's chapter 7. World record for me. Turn over to chapter 13. We'll try and get this done before sundown. Who belongs to the dragon? I can't read it out um, as much as even explain it, but what what you see here is another giant metaphorical, symbolic evaluation form. Like, how do you know that you're a follower of the Lamb? But, But really... The Bible never describes that there's any neutral ground whatsoever when it comes to salvation and who you worship. It's, it's, it's in some ways like uh, metaphorical or symbolic sharks. Some sharks. My friend Rob pointed out last time, he's like, some sharks actually do stop. Okay, okay, fine, Rob, I get it. But essentially, lots of sharks, they will die if they stop moving. They have to move in a direction That's the way we are made as worshipers. We have to worship something. We have to. It's just a question of what we worship. And so if you're not one of the lamb, you're working for the dragon. And that's why chapter 12 that Aaron uh, pulled apart last week is so important in this. You need to know that the dragon got furious when he couldn't defeat the, the, the child. 
That's what it says in chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with her offspring. That's us. And God let him. That's hard for us to hear, isn't it? But, but I think there's a sense in which God's saying, these people don't always know what they believe, so I'm going to allow some of this so that they find out. I know, but they don't. So this is where this text begins to turn internal. And what we see in this giant evaluation form is this description of these two beasts. Now, these two beasts are not the dragon himself. You see, the dragon's a coward who won't actually do anything himself. He just gets other people to work for him. Do you know a boss like that? You don't like them very much, do you? A boss, an employer, a parent, a brother, a sister, a child who gets everyone to do everything else for them all the time. They get under our skin. This is the dragon. This is what the dragon does. He's like, I'm not going to actually do this. That would be too obvious. I'm going to be more sneaky. I'm going to send two beasts. Okay, again, I'm speaking symbolically. Here's beast number one. Let's, let's walk through this. Beast number one um, is really just a summary of the four beasts in Daniel. So if, you've, if you're Jewish or have Jewish background or read the scriptures at all, you would have seen this in Daniel. This is common language, these four beasts. Interestingly enough about those four beasts is they had names. They were named. They were named military and political superpowers of the time. Okay? So with that image in mind, let's hear the description of this summary of four beasts. This looks like the dragon in some ways. It's ferocious. Ten horns symbolizing power. Seven heads symbolizing kind of, kind of this domineering completeness. This beast blasphemes for 42 months, a specific time period. Can't get into it, don't have time. This beast conquers anyone not considered part of the people of God. Notice that. It's allowed to conquer, but not conquer people whose name is actually written in the book of life. This beast has a mortal wound that ends up getting healed. You thought this guy was dead, but he keeps coming back. Is this not every like Marvel movie, by the way? Or crime story. You know, you know those crime stories where it's like the, the good guy shoots the bad guy and he's getting away and then the bad guy's like, ah, thought I shot you but you're not dead yet. Yeah, this is, this is him. This beast. Get, it's like whack-a-mole. Whack-a-beast. Get out of here. Get out. He just keeps coming back. For the first hearers, they would have most definitely heard that and went, oh, oh that's Rome. Of course it's Rome. And I think they're right. But I don't think it's only Rome. Because they actually applied it to themselves. Their governing ferocious power was Rome. And at the time, Rome dominated. How many volumes is the history of Rome? The Roman Empire. Roman Empire. You heard what I said, right? It was an empire for a long time that no one thought would ever, ever be destroyed. And it was almost gone in a flash of lightning. And so obviously these believers would have been, oh, you're, you're telling us to watch out for the governmental powers. And here's where we, if we're paying attention, have to hear that. We have to hear that there's also a beast in our country. There is also a governmental power in our country. 
And these beasts have sermons, just like Jesus has a sermon. Let's compare these sermons. Here's the sermon of the Lamb. I paid for your sin. I will forgive you. I will bring you life. I will bring you freedom. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. You can't have your sins washed away except by my blood. You can't hold off the wrath of God without someone doing it for you and I stood in your place. That is the gospel. That is the message that the Lamb preaches. And in the text, this beast blasphemes. Well, here's what blasphemy is. Blasphemy is attributing someone other than God what belongs to God. What is God, what belongs to God? Ultimate allegiance, ultimate authority, ultimate governance. If you blaspheme that, what do you say? God, you don't know better, I do. You either make someone else into a God or you make yourself God. And Rome made itself a God. Rome said, bow the knee. Rome said, that's fine, you can have your Christianity just as long as you worship us ultimately. Here's the sermon that comes from the government's institutional power. We know what's best. We know what's right. We know what's moral. We know what's evil. We know what's good. And when what we say interferes with what you or your church says, You have allegiance to us, first and foremost, or else. You see, that's the ferociousness from beast one, right? It rises up out of the sea. Sea is always death. I'm telling you, that beast is well alive in our world today. In many countries, and I would say in every country, that beast comes out of every sea. I'll give you some examples. Here's how it's in our own country. It's in the education system. The dragon's alive in the education system. When it comes to identity, purpose, creation of the world, and morality, they say we're neutral. No, they're not. It's a lie. They're not neutral. My uh, grade 8 daughter came home from school, and I asked her what she was learning. And she said, oh, I'm learning about worldviews. And I said, oh, what are they teaching you about worldviews? And she walked me through what they're teaching. And I was like, now this is something I didn't realize, that their worldview of their worldviews is wrong. It's not what God designed. Did you know that when our public education... And by the way, this is not a knock at teachers. I'm in this, like everyone else. My kids are part of this. I have to pay attention to this too. The public education system was designed specifically to take authority out of parents' hands and decide for them what is right and what is wrong. Did you know that? Did you know that the dragon is well and alive in the education system and we need to watch out for it? In morality, this is what our culture and our country is saying is right. Abortion, sexual ethical definitions according to your feelings but not your anatomy. Here's what is wrong. Disagreeing with that. That's what's wrong. I mean, can you not hear the beast? 
Can you not hear the dragon language in that? What are they saying about identity? What makes you a person? Why is the government talking about identity in the first place? This boggles my mind. But we're being told, here's what makes you a person. Here's what brings you life. Here's how you will find your true identity. Here's what will bring you freedom. Here is what hate speech is. Here is what love is. They preach messages like, love is love. Sounds okay. Here's the problem. Do you know what the Lamb's message on this is? God is love. Those are competing definitions. And if I say that out loud, there's, a, there's actually possibility for censorship, which would prove its point. It's in our responsibility. I find it hilarious that by law you're supposed to wait until you're 16 to pump gas from a gas pump, but you don't even have to talk to decide your gender. We don't think you could take responsibility to pump gas, but you can take responsibility for the one thing that confuses people for a lifetime. Friends, do you not hear that the beast is alive and it's winning people? It's winning people. People are like, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? What's the big deal? Trev, you're too harsh. Am I? Honestly, am I? This is, this is why this was written. These people are in threat of believing things. Because this beast is ferocious, relentless. It comes at us. It threatens us. It tells us, you can't live without us. We've got to watch out for beast number one because beast number two is right behind it. This beast rises from the earth. Notice something interesting about this beast, starting in, in verse 11 there. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, not out of the sea. So it rises out of amongst the people, not out of ultimate evil. But, but this beast has two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Ooh, that's good. This looks like the lamb, but it sounds like the dragon. What do you think that might be? People that look religious and follow the Lamb, but don't. People that say they're Christians, but actually are not. People that look like the Lamb, but speak like the dragon. These are religious powers. Religious institutional powers. Sometimes denominations, sometimes influential churches... The message of this beast, the sermon of this beast is compromise. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. You, you can do this and have this. You can be this way and be this way. You can be a Christian and have ultimate allegiance. You, you see, this beast actually pulls people to worship the first beast. Notice that? This beast tries to make excuses for the first beast and say, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. This beast is also ferocious. This, the mortal wound is healed. It's like whack a beast. Shows up again. I'll, I'll give you an example of this. This, this, is, this, this even affects, uh, in some ways, both culturally or politically, the left and the right. Because there are, bo there are both sides that think that government has way too big a place in life. 
There's some that's like, we need to get rid of the government that's in power, but they're only replacing it with Christians who are also in power. That's not the solution that's provided here. The institutional governmental beast power is not the solution. Here's an example of how compromise, how easy it is to compromise. I actually did some research. There are whole denominations I know of at least two that have authorized that critical theory and therefore critical race theory is a tool that can be used to help us understand racial justice and reconciliation. Now, some of you, this is where you get uncomfortable. You're like, this is real, friends. I spent some time thinking through it, looking at it. I was like, is it a tool? So I did some research. I was like, far down the line, it doesn't seem too bad, but it is birthed out of a movement, an ideology that wants to remove as much as possible God from the equation. Now, does that sound like a tool that the lamb would use? Or say, that's no big deal. I know it was developed by the dragon, but what's the big deal? This has infiltrated the church. There are Christian denominations that are like, no big deal. And if you disagree with them, they're like, see, this proves our point. No, it doesn't. This is how deceptive this is. They begin to say then, like, oh, you can't buy or sell. I believe that's still symbolic. And it's actually from this beast that the mark of the beast comes. Now, some of you are like, oh, I can't wait for this, mark of the beast. Sweet. You're like, I knew Walmart was up to something. <laughs> Good word. But here, here's the thing. If you're, if you're taking this in its context and in the storyline, and you're, you're keeping with the symbolism here, the mark of the beast isn't physical any more than the mark of the lamb is physical. If you think the mark of the beast is something you can accidentally get embedded in your wrist or in your phone, then you must also believe by nature, by treating this text as it was written, that the mark of Jesus also can be injected into your wrist and into your phone. And I've yet to hear a sermon on the mark of the lamb being the English Standard Version Bible tattoo. We're laughing because there is no sermon like this. It's not controversial. So why do we suddenly jump, for some of us, into this physical, it's, it's fear-mongering that we're, we're afraid. The mark of the beast is, I do not believe for a second, is a physical thing that is embedded into the skin. But I do believe it is something embedded into the heart, into the soul. And if that is true, then I am actually always in danger of having that mark being embedded into my heart and my soul. And you notice the way this mark comes. In every instance in the Bible, the right hand and the forehead kind of represent the thought, the ideology, the belief system, what we really worship and what we do. Always. In Deuteronomy, it's very simple. It, when, when God saves his people and then he he tells them to remember and teach it to her children. He says, act like, like, put it in a headband on your heads and put it around your wrists. Is he trying to say, get a physical wristband? 
it said. Blood of the lamb, blood of the lamb. No, he's saying it should be in your thoughts all day and it should be in your actions. In every place in the Bible, the right hand and the forehead always represent the totality of how humans think and act. And this is why I think the mark comes spiritually. And that's even scarier than an actual mark because it means that there could be a number of people with the actual mark of the beast who have believed that we're, we're being too conservative, too over the top, Got to follow the lamb. Oh, not with everything. I think, friends, this is, this is a question of what do we do? I mean, does that sound discouraging to you? Spend some time. This is overwhelming if you just read chapter 13. Never, ever read chapter 13 by itself. That's a command. Never, ever. Why? Because you will lose hope. You will be like them in the text. What do we do? Who's like the beast? Who can fight it? Have you felt that? Oh, it's going to happen anyways. What's the big deal? Right? That's that. It's like, oh, you can't buy or sell. Really, I can't live life normally unless I agree with your way of thinking, unless I do things the way you think I should. I'm not allowed to follow the lamb wherever he goes. I think it's in all of us. So here's what I think we should do. We should turn back to Revelation chapter 3 verse 2 and hear the word to a church that was facing this very thing. You see, this was a letter, apocalyptic letter, written to seven churches that were supposed to listen to each other's messages. So we can't forget that many of the churches are facing the pressure from both beasts and therefore the dragon, this false trinity, so to speak. What were they supposed to do? Revelation chapter 3 verse 2 says it very well that everyone should pay attention to. Wake up. There's a beast after your soul. And if there's not that beast, there's another beast. And behind those beasts is an empowering dragon who wants to kill you. But there's a lamb who was slain. Who the beasts can't touch. There is a dragon. Oh, yes. But this little bitty baby boy that turned into a man kicked him to the curb. Aw, precious dragon, get out of here. I love that image. I need that image. I need to hear that. When I'm discouraged at what's going on, when I don't feel I can make it through this COVID crisis any longer, when I'm tired of arguing, I'm tired of hearing good news. I'm tired of bad news. Because I don't know anymore if the good news is good news, and I don't know anymore if the bad news is bad news. I'm confused. Sometimes I'm terrified. How's it going to end? Am I going to be one of the ones? I need to hear Jesus say, I got this. I got this. I got this. That's why I sealed you. I'm preserving you. 
I'm growing in you. I'm doing things. I'm giving this, this dragon a leash to help you understand what you actually believe. Because you need to know that, Trev. Why does God allow suffering? Why does he allow this kind of wine press? Because you know what you get out of wine presses? You get wine. But it hurts. But this kind of, this kind of image in chapter 14, man, I, I got to fly through this. Chapter 14, there's the 144,000. We spent time on that. And then we see in chapter 14.6, he's moving on to an image that he sees of three angels that I believe are the fullness of the gospel. These three angels aren't really preaching three different messages. They're preaching the fullness of how the gospel works. Let me explain this to you. Angel number one preaches a gospel eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. This is the fullness of the gospel. The gospel isn't for Jews, only it's for Jews who believe and those who are not Jews who believe. To go back to our 144,000 image of God's people, the church. And the gospel goes everywhere and is going everywhere and is continually going everywhere. There are more Christians now than there ever has been. And it continues to flourish all across. Talk to Fred who sees this everywhere he goes. There's constantly this sense in which the gospel is going out. It's having power. It's saving people. It seems like the only place in the world that's not experienced revival is like Canada and the U.S., that doesn't mean the gospel's not growing all over the place. In every nation, every tribe. The good news isn't for Jews, it's for everyone. That's angel one. He's not done. Angel two says, Babylon has fallen. Can you imagine that conversation? Three angels standing around in heaven. What'd you get? I got the gospel goes everywhere and it's had power. What'd you get? Babylon has fallen. What'd you get? <laughs> Doesn't sound like a good message. Oh, but it is a good message because Babylon is perpetually the picture of the city of man positioned against the city of God. The city of God, symbolically throughout the, the, uh, the scriptures, is always Zion, Jerusalem. Even when it's not physically talking about Jerusalem or Zion, it's talking about it as a metaphorical or symbolic activity. And Babylon is always Satan's city. It's always the dragon's city. The message of the gospel is the dragon city is burning to the ground. Hallelujah. You know what hallelujah means? Yes. That's what it means. It doesn't show up until revelation. Friends, it is good news not just that you have salvation, but that your great enemy, the dragon, has no power over you. Nothing. He's a cosmic ruler who is helpless at the name of Jesus Christ. That should tell us something. Babylon is fallen. Now, the first hearers were like, dude, you're talking about Rome, right? Yeah, it was only a matter of time. But Rome went down, just like every Babylon will go down. I think it was talking about Rome, actually. And I think it's talking about every dragon-like beast 
every city that's ever built around the dragon's ideologies. It's going down, friends. There's only one side that wins here. And so it's beginning to lead us to the message of the third angel, which is, the harvest has begun and is going to continue. When Jesus ascended, it shows us the Son of Man on the cloud. The angel's like, hey, Son of Man, go out, start harvesting. Send out some harvesters with sickles, and there's these two harvests. One is the harvest of the grain, one is the harvest of the grapes. This time the grape harvest isn't good. This time the grape harvest creates this great river of blood. And some want to believe that this actually talked about um, what happened to Jews and Christians in, in AD 70. I'm, I'm actually fine with that, but I, I, I don't think it stops there. I, th- I, th- I think it moves on. In fact, I think this really is a picture of those who face the wrath of God The wrath of God, the holiness of God is so holy, and we're going to sing about it in a bit, is so holy, he is so just, he pays for every single sin. He never misses one. Every impure motive, every rebellion, every way we've gone needs to be paid for because he's that just, and it would require a lot of blood. Read Leviticus. There's a lot of blood in Leviticus. And here's what I think that is symbolizing. It's symbolizing the shed blood of Jesus. The shed blood of Jesus is so deep. It's the height of a horse's bridle, depending on your horse or pony. Four feet, five feet. It's 200 miles long. That's obviously an American translation, so 320 kilometers. So pretty much the Bow River from Banff to Carsland, plus, of blood. What the image is, is there is enough blood for you. You you think you've sinned heinously against God? You think there's nothing he can't forgive? Jump in the river. There's lots here. There's grace that you don't even know about yet. There's grace for sins you haven't even thought about yet. Jump in the river. Because here is the reality. The harvest is here. It's not just coming. It's here. Jesus is harvesting by even this very message of preaching the gospel that some of you, unfortunately, it breaks my heart, but will reject this and not take this seriously. It's coming. And it's unloving of me to not warn you that it's on its way and present and around the corner. But here's the thing. Somebody's going to pay for your sin. Either you are or Jesus can and has. It's your choice. This is the text saying, your choice actually really matters. You decide, friends, what do you want to do? Do you want to take on the beasts by yourself? Do you want to take on the dragon by yourself? Where he has you handcuffed in your sin and condemnation? Or do you want to jump in the river of the blood of the lamb and be covered by him and have the only person that can defeat the dragon fend him off for you? It's your choice, friends. 
I know what side I'm on. Because, not because I'm perfect, but because I know that's the side I want to be on. And Jesus, I'm ready to follow you wherever you go. Even if it means uncomfortably talking about Revelation on Sunday morning. Which is where Jesus led me this morning. So let's sing about this holiness. I'll invite the team up. And I want us to prepare for communion. This isn't kind of an additional thing we do. This is really the heartbeat of what we do because this is a way of symbolically saying, look at, look at all that river up there. We've provided some river for you this morning, symbolically. There's the shed blood of Jesus represented by the drink. There's the broken body of Jesus represented by the cracker. This is Jesus' way of saying, you, you, the suffering you will experience as one of my followers is only for your good, and it'll never be what I did. And the blood is blood that eliminates you from having to pay the price tag. And so as we sing, go ahead and grab the elements, and then we'll celebrate it together after our song. <laughs>